And about two years after I graduated from Stanford Business School, I started one of the first boutique hotel companies. I actually lost five friends to suicide. Ended up spending the next uh, seven and a half years helping the young founders of Airbnb take their little tech startup and turn it into the world's most valuable hospitality company. So on IPO, it was a, worth the company was worth over $100 billion. So why don't we have midlife wisdom schools? Why don't we have a place where people in midlife can reimagine and repurpose themselves? So what is it that we typically get wrong about uh, midlife? And I think Deb, naturally... Is it cool? Because I am, I am maybe, uh, that's why I say, because I'm cool. I have swagger. That's why I tell them. Yeah. And I tell them that swagger skips a generation. So their kids are going to have swagger. And that's the good news for them. <laughs> Give a pro-aging message uh, to the world because we have a, a whole lot of anti-aging messages out there. How do you navigate your transitions? How do you cultivate purpose? How do you own your wisdom? And how do you reframe your relationship with aging? Chip Conley is an extraordinary man. He's the author of the book, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age, that is out now, brand new. He's also the original modern elder of a little up and coming company that you might've heard of called Airbnb. He is the founder of the Modern Elder Academy where he teaches individuals, organizations, corporations to integrate, create climates and cultures for intergenerational wisdom. So you're, if you're anywhere between 35 and 75, you should pay attention to what Chip has to say. You're going to love this conversation. Chip Conley, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And, uh, I, I've been it's looking been forward to this for a long time. I wish we could have done it in person in Austin. That would have been beautiful. Yes, indeed. As I was telling you when we were sort of prepping for this is that, you know, I heard your story originally uh, on Rich Roll, right, on, on the podcast, and it was just absolutely fascinating. And what I wanted to start with is ask you the backstory, because the backstory is just full of rich nuances. So can you can you give us sort of a quick version of the of the backstory before... Uh, the modern uh, El El elder academy before the books before everything else. Yeah, so I um, grew up in Southern California, and I uh, went up north to college at Stanford. Went to Stanford Business School as well. And about two years after I graduated from Stanford Business School, I started one of the first boutique hotel companies in the U.S. called Joie de Vivre, means joy of life in French. And I, yes. I just, I loved the name. It's not a particularly practical name in the United States. Most people don't know what it means, how to pronounce it, or how to spell it. But um, over the next 24 years, I was the CEO of that company. We became the second largest in the US. Each of our hotels had a different name. There were 52 of them all around 52. California. Wow. 52 different hotels, but each one its own brand, its own name, um, all around California. I sold the company. Um, when I, around when I turned 50, um, and I'd been going through a really rough time. My late forties were, uh, I had the midlife crisis. I'll come back to it later and talk about why it's a midlife chrysalis, not a crisis. Yes. Um, but I had a very difficult time during that time. And, uh, I actually lost five friends to suicide, five, five male friends, 40, age 42 to 52 during the great recession. So I sold the company, moved on, ended up spending the next, uh, seven and a half years helping the young founders of Airbnb take their little tech startup and turn it into the world's most valuable hospitality company. So I was the in-house mentor, what they yeah. called the modern elder. Modern elder, they said, Chip, you're our modern elder. I was like, you're making fun of my age. They said, well, you're you're twice the age of the average person here. First of all, let's let's start with that. Let's be real, yeah. 
Yeah. Secondly, we think that you're a modern elder because a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. Uh, and when I heard that, I was like, ooh, I like that. I like, like that. The ultimate alchemy of curiosity and wisdom. And, um, and so that's how I started working on a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. While I was working on that book down in Baja, um, I had a Baja Aha, Baja being in Mexico. Right. I had a Baja Aha, and that was, uh, why don't we have midlife wisdom schools? Why don't we have a place for people wow. in midlife can reimagine and repurpose themselves? And so that is how I ended up creating the world's first midlife wisdom school. Um, and we have a second campus now opening in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, with the first campus being on the beach in Baja, and the second one, a 2,600-acre regenerative horse ranch outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, so let me, uh, uh, this was very quick. It was perhaps maybe too quick for me because I know a little bit more of the story. But let me uh, ask you a couple of additional questions about the backstory. So first of all, um, when you joined Airbnb, were they already hot or were they just starting? So I joined Airbnb about four or five years after they'd started. Their first two years were rough. Um, it was a, a business that had a very, it took a little while for it to get some momentum. Um, I joined in early 2013. By 2011, the company was starting to get some momentum and it was starting to go global. And um, it, so I, I joined when it had some momentum, um, but it was the best way to describe, uh, most people had never heard of Airbnb when I joined. The best way to describe it was it was a millennial product for people on a budget in 20 of the largest cities in the world. And that okay. was sort of really, that was where most of their business came from. Mm -hmm. And so part of my job was to figure out how to mainstream the business um, and and actually improve the quality, especially with our hosts, um, and then build the strategy. I was in charge of strategy, I was in charge of a few things. But you know what, they would have done fine without me. Now, the truth is they would not probably done as well without me, but they had momentum. Uh, but you know, they, when, when it went on IPO, it was a worth, the company was worth over a hundred billion dollars. So <laughs> it, it went a long way for sure. Um, and uh, what I really admired and appreciated the most was that Brian Chesky, who was 21 years younger than me and one of the co-founders and the CEO, he was not intimidated about having a guy like me who was 21 years older than him, who had a long-term experience as a CEO in the hospitality business, had a lot of you know notoriety as a leader because I write leadership books. But he was he was confident enough in his own abilities that he really wanted me to be by his side to help uh, be his mentor. The truth is, I was his mentor <laughs> because I was both the mentor <laughs> and mentor and the intern at the same time. And you were learning about the the hustle, learned, the hustle culture, all of that stuff, right? I learned hustle culture. I learned about DQ. He learned about EQ from me, emotional intelligence. I learned about DQ, digital intelligence, from him. Right. And I learned a lot. I, and I so I really credit Brian for. Um, creating a really symbiotic relationship between the two of us. So this is obviously not not typical, right? So I I work in in one of my businesses. I work a lot with startup founders and, and things like that. So I have a little bit of an acquaintance of the cultural texture. The cultural texture is fail fast, like go you know like go down in flames, and it's glorified and everything. And so, what is it about Airbnb and and, and Chesky that? was different was was it him was it just the the culture was different was seated differently that brought about this very unusual move you know i mean i think it's a few things uh, i think the fact that the three founders we uh 
there's no company that's ever grown to the valuation of Airbnb that has had three founders actively involved in the business for over 10 years. Um, mm. And so I think that was part of it, although part of my role was to help the three of them to work better together. Um, I think Brian had, you know, had a growth mindset. He had a huge appetite for learning. Um, and I think that had something to do with it. I think that Joe uh, was the, Joe, one of the other founders, was focused on culture, as was Brian and, and Nate, but he, you know that was exceptionally important. And so they invested in culture, which was huge. So if you're gonna grow globally, you bet and have 22 offices around the world in 22 different countries, you better figure that out. Um, culture is gonna be the thing that binds you. And then Nate, the third uh, co-founder, was just the brilliant technology brain of the thing. And and Airbnb was put together uh, you know, on a relatively low budget to start with. And then it started getting some funding, but it could not, the, the two others, the two designers, uh, um, Brian and Joe could never have done this without Nate because he was, he was doing the technology stuff. He's a Harvard uh, trained engineer and he was able to do the uh, technology stuff very inexpensively. And at this point, Joe has stepped away from the business in the last couple of years and he's actually living in Austin. Um, and uh, so it's just uh, Brian and Nate still actively involved in the business. Wow. Are you still in touch with them, by the way? Oh, yeah. I mean, I oh. literally text, texted Brian today. Um, oh, so we're going to have, have dinner soon. So yeah, we, we had a very deep, close relationship. In your new book that I read and loved, by the way, on Thank so you. many levels, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. And I can affirm that, that the, the journey... Uh, of life has a it's a smile right so it goes okay. up uh closer to to it gets better it really does and someone who's actually i went through my midlife uh chrysalis in your in your terms in los yeah. angeles uh mm. like 15 years ago i sort of emerged from it maybe 14 years ago um and it was i i really i i love what you said and i want more people to say it because that's exactly how i feel i i highly recommend midlife crises or chrysalises because if you if you do it right you emerge transformed upgraded full of energy and um so what is it that we typically get wrong about uh midlife well, let's talk about the crisis versus chrysalis language. First of all, I, I was on the TED stage earlier this year and gave a talk about the midlife crisis. And the first thing I said when I came on stage was, um, what's the first word that comes to mind when you think of midlife? And the audience all in unison said crisis. And it's like, oh, wow, what, a, what a bad brand that get, that life stage has. Um, but you know, the crisis suggests that maybe everything's falling apart. And in fact, there's a lot that's going on. The U-curve of happiness does show that around age, you know, sometime in your 40s, typically, maybe later 40s, is the low low point in your adult satisfaction. But it starts to decline in your early 20s. It does. It, 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 it sort of like bottoms out around 45 to 50. And then with each decade after that, you get happier and happier. So the way I started to actually look at this is to say, well, you know, the, the, the biological um, hero, uh, the caterpillar that, that turns into a, a, uh, a butterfly has a midlife that's the chrysalis. Yes. So the caterpillar consumes, mm -hmm. just like we consume and produce in our 20s and 30s and 40s. And then it spins a chrysalis and it goes into the chrysalis and it's dark and gooey and solitary inside. But actually, that's where the transformation happens. 
So the chrysalis is the time when the metamorphosis can happen. Mm-hmm. So instead of the bigger crisis, it's a time for a crossroads for change and transition in one's life. And then on the other side of that, in one's 50s, 60s, and 70s and beyond, uh, we, we can pollinate our wisdom in the world and um, right. as, a, as a butterfly. So um, what we've gotten wrong about midlife is the idea that if you can survive your midlife, all you have to look forward to is disease, decrepitude, and death. Um, in fact, you have you have your 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond to look forward to when you're getting happier. And what I tried to chronicle in the book, Learning to Love Midlife, was the research I'd done based upon talking to academics, based upon having 4,000 alums from 44 countries come to Baja to go through our program. I, I wanted to say, here's what I've learned. Here are the 12 reasons why I think people are getting uh, happier as they get older. And, um, you know, we're very clear in especially Western society about what gets worse with age. You know, maybe our memory, maybe our body. Um, there's a lot of things that get worse with age, but there's a lot of things that get better as well. And and I think what I wanted to do is give a pro-aging message uh, to the world because we have a, a whole lot of anti-aging messages out there. We live longer, so we are we're healthier in general. As as a, as a, you know, in, in the history of humanity, we haven't, at least in recorded history, we haven't lived as long um, as we live now. And at the same time, with this sort of optimistic fact about our physical life, our emotional, our professional life, our spiritual life, our sort of contribution to society gets diminished to playing golf or something like something just ridiculously cliche, you know, and, and I feel like there's no story to replace that. Yeah. Not active, you know, and, and I just, that's why I think uh, what you're, what you're doing with the Academy, what you're doing with your book is tremendously important uh, because we're, we, what a loss of resources, of wisdom, of energy, of vitality, uh, if we don't have this cultural reawakening to midlife as a, as a wonderful gift. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have such an opportunity intergenerationally. Um, and certain cultures, uh, his, the Latino culture, the um, African-American culture, Asian culture, generally speaking, has some intergenerational collaboration and maybe multi-generations live together. But in the dominant culture in the United States, that's just not true, the the, the Caucasian culture. and Do you find well, that is, this is a Western thing, it, not just American, Western. but Western? Yeah, it is a Western thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, I, you could, if you go to, you know, Latin America, if you go to Asia, um, you go to Africa, you see the intergenerational living situations more yeah. often. Yeah. Um, so there's a real opportunity here. And the opportunity is not just at home, it's also in the workplace. By the year 2025, which is very soon, the US Department of Labor says that the majority of Americans will have a younger boss. We've never seen this before. I mean, wow. we've never. So, how do we create a, a workplace where we have younger people? Um, being the boss of older people. Well, that won't work well unless we can think of it as an intergenerational potluck so that every generation can bring to the table that which they know best, as I did with Brian um, at Airbnb. So I think there's a real opportunity here. Um, I also think the idea of modern elders in the workplace is going to start to grow because all the world's knowledge, Christian, is in my iPhone. And now with uh, AI with artificial intelligence, 
it's even more accessible in in other ways. So knowledge is a commodity. What's really valuable and scarce is wisdom. It's wisdom, yeah. And you can have wisdom at any age. I mean, I've I know people who are 30 years old and wiser than a 70-year-old, partly because they have taken their painful life lessons as the raw material for their future wisdom, and they've learned from those lessons. Um, so how do we create wiser organizations? How do we create wisdom workers? How do we create wisdom practices? That, um, just as many companies 60 years ago created knowledge management practices, I think it's time for us to consider wisdom management practices. And that's part of what we do at MEA is we we really help to train people in their midlife, average age is exactly your age, 54, um, and about 75% of the people are between 45 and 65. How do we help them to figure out what their mastery and gift is so that they can offer it to younger people and, mm -hmm. and they can learn from younger people as well? So uh, yeah, I, I'm excited that uh, what we're doing um, with MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, is hopefully a prototype for what, we're gonna, for what we'll see more and more. That moment where you transform from a caterpillar and you have to form a cocoon, it's just this weird phase where the question sort of pops up, what is wrong with me? Yeah, yeah. Right? When things, generally speaking, not everything that you dreamt of pans out the way you dreamt of it. Yeah. The things you planned don't pan out the way you, pan, you, you, the way you planned it. And so how do you... If you're, if you're talking to someone entering into that phase, and it could be as early as, honestly, 35, 37. I think you mentioned oh, yeah, that as well. Sure. You know, it really depends. It's not really a number specifically. For me, it was yeah. actually just right on point around around 40. Um, yeah. And, and there, was, there was this like, almost like I hit a wall and it was not depression. It was not um, necessarily a loss of will for life, but it's this confusion, almost like a disoriented state and going, you know, what is wrong with me? Am I, uh, am I a complete failure? Am I semi-failure? You know, like all of those things. What would you say to people who are in that place right now? Well, I'd say you're not alone. Um, the, uh, the group in the United States that actually the age group that takes the most antidepressants are people from age 40 to 55. <laughs> oh, wow. What does that tell you? Yes. Um, so you're not alone. And a lot of what you're experiencing is, as you said, disappointment equals expectations minus reality. Right. Your expectations were high. And then you, you thought you were married, you're going to marry your soulmate and didn't happen that way. And <clears throat> you, your kids are, are not Ivy leaguers and you'd have many fewer zeros uh, for, behind <laughs> your name for your net worth. Yes. And so it's a period of time in our forties often where we can, we had an hope and expectation and now we can see the future and it doesn't look like it, we're going to get there. And, and so there's can be a bit of a disillusionment, but it's also a time where we start to do what Brené Brown, <clears throat> the famous sociologist says, you start to actually, um, unravel your expectations. She she calls it the un midlife unraveling, which sounds like someone losing their mind. But uh, when I talked with her about this, she says, Chip, if you look at the word ravel in the dictionary, it means something that's so tightly clustered, you can't unknot it. Oh. And that's not how we feel. And so to unravel something is to give spaciousness and right. to actually not feel stuck. And so um, a lot of times what we have to do in midlife is learn how to let go of some of the mindsets, the archetypes of how we've lived our lives, 
some of our script that we've been living up, living to, um, and we need to let those go and then say, what are we going to replace it with? And, and so what I would say to someone who is struggling through this, check out my book, Learning to Love Midlife. Um, check out the MEA website, uh, and you'll see on the MEA website, there's a free uh, blog. I do a daily blog called Wisdom Well, and it's good stuff. I mean, I, like I, I like writing, so writing once a day, like I love it. Um, but it's really based upon a lot of topics that are relevant to people in midlife or early midlife as well. Like you know, So midlife goes from 35 to 75, according to sociologists. But as you said, it's more of a stage of life. And so the topics that I, I write about and that we actually talked about at MEA are how do you navigate your transitions? How do you cultivate purpose? How do you right. own your wisdom? And how do you reframe your relationship with aging such that it may not be a bad thing? There may be some upside. And you also say that there are actually stages to midlife, right? There's like midlife puberty, um, <laughs> you know, settling into yeah. it. And, and so ex explain that uh, because I think that's a really helpful tool to go, okay, I'm, it's not yeah. one bucket. It's, it's, it's so, almost like three, four buckets, right? Early midlife, which if I were to give numbers to it, but again, it, it, it's more of a stage than an age. Early midlife, 35 to 50 is when you are no longer young. And right. it's very clear you're no longer young. Yes. And for some, that might be before 35. But it's when you start to actually realize that um, your body's starting to break down a little bit. Um, in, some, in some workplaces, you've become like an older person in the workplace. And sometimes you feel a little bit of ageism coming your way because the, the millennial <laughs> – well, actually, that, those Gen Zers are – You don't get the language. You don't even say what they're get, talking you about, right? don't get right? the lingo. Um, yeah. And – so it's actually a hard time. It, that's the hardest of the three stages of midlife. So mm -hmm. early midlife, it, because it's you're really having to realize that you're you're starting to be a younger, older person, as opposed to an older, younger person. And then you go to fifty to sixty, and that's the core of midlife. And I, I you know, that's when I had my best decade. I, I loved my fifties because, frankly, I had I had taken off all the identities and all the costumes of what my early midlife was. And I started to actually not try to satisfy my parents or anybody else anymore. And, and I just really focused on what was important to me. And, um, but also I, I got, I, I, while I had that, what's important to me thought I was also sort of moving out of my ego and getting a little bit more interested in something inside of me, my soul. And so 50 to 60 is the core of midlife. And then 60 to 75 is older midlife. Um, it is a period of time where people generally are getting happier, um, as the U-curve shows, but they're also starting to get clearer on mortality and starting to think about, okay, what is retirement? Do I want to do it? Do I not want to do it? What am I retiring? Not what am I retiring from, but what am I retiring to? Right. Um, and it's also a period of time when generativity kicks in, which means how are we giving back to younger people? And, you know, you've probably done that if you have kids your whole life. But now it becomes grandkids or mentees or it's broader you know, and more. I think it's more primal, maybe, you it, know, where you it, want to pollinate, right? It's, it's more primal and more societal. It's not yeah. just when yeah, it comes yeah, to yeah. Your kids, it's hard to be a mentor to your kids because you're one of your primary roles as a parent is to make sure that they don't get themselves hurt. And, and, and so that you're sort of risk averse as a parent. As a mentor, you're not. As a mentor, you're a permissionary. You're, well, that's a very interesting distinction. Yeah, You're supposed to help people have permission 
and have confidence. You're supposed to be a confidant. Yeah. And no one, no kid wants their parent to be a confidant. Although true. I, that's not true. That's not true. Not, I, I said, no, most kids don't want their parent to be a confidant. Yes. Um, I'm lucky. So, I think, I think mine are, mine do. Uh, I have three daughters and I think Deb cool. naturally. Because you're cool. Because I am, I am maybe, uh, that's why I say, because I'm cool. I have swagger. That's why I tell them. Yeah. And I tell them that swagger skips a generation. So their kids are going to have swagger and that's the good news for them. <laughs> uh, but they are, they are, their mother is more of a confident, but they tell me everything as well, which is, yeah. Yeah. I find one of the greatest gifts, but it's still not the same thing. It's not a mentor. It's still maybe a parent that you're close to. Correct? Yeah. 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 So I think 60 to 75 is a period where we start to look at our role as having something to offer the world. If, if, if our life is going well, let's also say that there's a lot of people who don't fit this profile. The average retiree in America watches 47 hours of TV a week. Okay. That is not giving back to other generations. And so, um, and a lot of the cranky people in the U S today are people who are older. And so, mm -hmm. uh, when I talk about this, people say like, you know, let me introduce you to my uncle. He's just, he's a, he's a cranky old son of a gun. And I was like, yeah, th there are lots of examples of people who don't fit this profile, but this is global data about the U curve of happiness um, that is including the U S. And so there's a lot of, again, my book really speaks to it in a bigger way in terms of what are the 12 reasons. But I, all I can say is um, midlife is a marathon. It can last 40 years. Yeah. That's true. Can I can I ask you this as a as someone who grew up, uh, spent a lot of time in the global south, right? Mm -hmm. Latin America, Africa, and some time in Europe as well. There, there seems to be as you as you mentioned, this massive difference between generational uh, sort of culture, intergenerational culture in the global south. There's much more respect, much more integration. Some of it is produced by millennia of tradition, but also socioeconomic limitations, correct? Like we are much more uh, uh, upwardly mobile. We move out of our parents' homes. We move to pursue jobs in the West, right? We move cities, states, countries sometimes, right? Um, so the, some of it is that. And so my question, I guess, is we look at the global South, that we look, look at humanity for millennia, basically before just 200 years ago. <clears throat> it was fairly, intergeneration connection was fairly tight. Uh, with v variations. Um, we've lost quite a bit of that to our detriment. Yep. My question is this, is this lost forever? Is there something you can do so, sort of to bridge the gap and not throw the baby out with the, with the, with the bathwater? Well, or, or is it irreversible just because of the evolution, uh, the socioeconomic evolution of the West, cultural evolution of the West? So I would say one other thing that has led to the intergenerational and also to the hierarchy based upon age. So, um, you know, older people, elders having respect is religion. And um, the cultures that have a very strong religion often have a, hi a hierarchy built into them. The older you are, the more respect you have, et cetera. Um, I think the thing that is true today, and it's more most true in Asia, a place that used to have much more intergenerational connection, very much a respect for the elders, but it's changing pretty quickly is in the old days you went to grandma or grandpa if you had a question as a kid today you go to google and you go to google or ai and that shift is means that what we are seeing in the west <clears throat> is starting to be a global phenomenon 
that um, the need of to have your elders by your side as someone to actually teach you something is is less important. Let's also look at what led to elders in the West becoming less important. Number one, it was going from an agricultural uh, economy to an industrial econ- economy. In an agricultural economy, having an old farmer was like having a farmer's almanac. It's like ha- the farmer could smell the wind, yeah. And, yeah. and you just had the intuition, and you had you had you had land wisdom. Yeah, you go into the industrial era, and it becomes brawn. It becomes and robotic, and it's and frankly, being older was not to your benefit, other than if you're maybe a, an older manager. Um, but for the line level work, nope, was really not. It was you know backbreaking work often, and and so there's a, there was less wisdom was no less important there. Um, and then you go to the technology era, and like wow, it's you know digital natives versus digital immigrants. Mm-hmm. I'm a digital immigrant. That's right. Um, because I did not grow up with technology. Um, if you're 25, you're a digital native, and so in a world where digital intelligence DQ is very important, um, we tend to prize people who are younger. And so ageism in the workplace grows, and especially in certain kinds of industries. So all of that's happened in the West. Um, and and I think religion, the breakdown of religion in the West, additionally, guess what? That's a foreshadowing to what's happening in the global South, in Asia. So it's going um, in that direction anyway. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it is. It is. And therefore, I'm hoping that what we can do is help to show the value of wisdom in an AI AI society, such that those organizations realize that you know having a having diversity in age in a workplace mm-hmm. is just as important as having diversity of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying this remarkable conversation with Chip Conley. Before I ask him one last question, I want to share an opportunity with you. If you go to exponential.life. Uh, you can get free access to a training that I provide there that really sort of unpacks a lot of the practical aspects of what him and I are discussing. This chrysalis, this transformation in midlife that can happen, that can make the second half of your life the most remarkable, high-impact, world-changing life you can get, a happy life. I hope you enjoy it. Go to Mm exponential.life. Yeah, I think think in the same way how... uh, for example, people like Oprah and other uh, people that basically study happiness as, a, as an art, right? As a mm-hmm. set of being, it became from a fad to this sort of self-help thing, like Tony Robbins, right, right, whatever, until, until the numbers start showing that it actually impacts the bottom line. And now mm-hmm. every corporation wants to change culture, figure out how to inc- inc- change sort of the happiness, the happiness index uh, mm-hmm. of, of their corporation. I, I have a sense that maybe wisdom is going to enter the that same stream. I, I agree. And I, we're already seeing it in, in companies that are sort of ahead of the game. Um, and uh, our fastest growing part of our MEA business is our B2B, our, our private really? workshops where companies or peer-to-peer groups like YPO or mm-hmm. EO or Vistage say, hey, we want to come and learn your curriculum in a private group. Uh, where we can actually learn about wisdom and wisdom management. So, oh, that's wonderful. What would you say to someone who perhaps feels, "I wish I knew this ten years ago," mm. and I, I feel like I've lost 
my opportunity. Look at them talking about this with such optimism. And I am over the hill and I have no value. It, yeah. it, I have a sense what you're going to say, but I want you to say it to them. Yeah, well, I'll say two things. Number one is, well, longevity in the United States is rough these days. It's it's no better than it was in 1996. Um, and it's definitely growing very fast the rest of the world. Um, the fact is we're living longer than we used to. So you have more life ahead of you than you think you do. The average age of the person who comes to MEA is 54. The average age they think they're going to live till is 90. 54 is exactly halfway between 18 when you become an adult and 90 when you die. So at 54, you have a lot of life ahead of you, 36 years. So start with that. Um, secondly, the question I would suggest that this person asks themselves is the following. Um, what do I know now or what have I done now that I wish I'd learned or done 10 years ago? Get that in your brain. Think about okay, it. Okay. And then, and then ask yourself 10 years from now, what will you regret? If you don't learn it or do it now ah. because anticipated regret is a form of wisdom it is and for this for this person who feels like well life has passed me by it's too late you know think about the things that you will regret 10 years from now if you don't learn it or do it now this is how i learned to start surfing at age 57 and how to start speaking spanish because i learned french that hence joie de vivre my hotel company. Joie de vivre, yes but i never learned spanish and so i live in mexico part-time because our baja campus is there so i've been you know mi espanol is muy malo uh, pero estoy mejorando i mean i'm 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 getting sí, better así es, así es, así es. so um it's really important for us to ask that question because to imagine so yeah. what we could learn or what we could do in these next 10 years gives us the the incentive to become a beginner again i think so too and i think honestly it's i would say if i were to contribute to someone and someone who's listening now who is in that sort of state of mind i would say it would be a tragedy to lose you the the treasure inside of you mm. um it would be a complete tragedy it would change history quite literally right mm. um and don't allow that to happen because we're all better because of, of you being among us, serving us, sharing your wisdom with us. So if you're in that place, read the book. If you're not even in that place, if you're just entering, you're in this sort of confused, oh, I think, I'm, I, think I need this. Uh, read the book, Learning to Love Midlife. It's out now. And check out the Modern uh, Elder Academy um, online as well. It's, it's fantastic stuff. Chip, yeah. thank you so much for coming. Beautiful. I really, really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you in Austin. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll get coffee. Thank you. If you enjoyed my conversation with Chip Conley, I think you're going to really enjoy my conversation with Brandon Nicely at Headspace. Uh, and the reason I think that is because Brandon is a remarkable example of a lifelong successful career that spans multiple seasons in life. Watch it next. I think you're going to love it.